0: You're listening to a teaching series by Cross Culture Church of Christ. If you'd like any more information about our church, head to crossculture.net.au. Feel free to share this podcast with others, but please don't alter the content in any way. We hope you enjoy it. When you think of who God is, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? Uh, Perhaps you might think that God doesn't exist at all, and even if he did, he'd be indifferent. That he wouldn't really care, he wouldn't really involve himself in the world. But perhaps for you, the first thing that comes to your mind is that God is love. Um, And in fact, many religions will affirm that, that God is love. Or maybe the first thing that comes to you is that God is powerful, that He's the creator, He's the sustainer of the universe. Or maybe it's that God is just, that He judges, that He rules the world fairly and without compromise. But I wonder, how many of you think of God as merciful? It's not a word we use much these days, but the word mercy is all about helping the helpless. And it describes not just what God does towards the helpless, but it also describes how God feels towards the helpless. So today we're going to see that mercy lies at the very core of who God is. And as we grasp the magnitude of this reality, I pray that our view of God will be transformed. And it really matters because how you see God will determine how you relate to Him. So we begin today with mercy to a childless couple. Um, you might remember Zechariah and Elizabeth, that they're an elderly couple and they've not been able to have kids. Um, and in this culture where kids are a great source of pride, where they provide for their parents in their old age, not being able to have kids can bring shame. Um, and it can even leave elderly parents a little bit vulnerable too. So when an angel shows up to Zechariah and promises that they're going to have a kid, at first he doesn't believe it. Um, He asks for another sign to prove this promise. And so the angel gives him a sign of not being able to talk because he didn't believe. But now in verse 57, just as God promised, they have a son. Um, I remember how excited I was when two of my close friends had their very first child Um, I remember they shared with me how they'd longed to be parents for such a long time. Um, They'd been trying to have kids for many years, but instead um, they suffered a very painful miscarriage. Um, So I remember as I walked to the hospital uh, to see this child for the very first time, my heart could only feel joy. Um, I was thinking about how God had so generously provided for them, how he helped them through such difficult moments of their life to bring them finally this child. And as I held this child in my hands, the only thing I could think about was, man, I better not drop this baby. I was so nervous. Um, And in verse 58, this child John is caused for great joy to his parents, for their friends, for their family, because the Lord had shown great mercy to Elizabeth. God sees a helpless couple who are too old to have kids and shows mercy by fulfilling His promises to this child. God's mercy means that He helps the helpless, that He has a special compassion, that He's drawn towards the weak, those who can't save themselves. You know, I wonder if you were God, if you were running the world, what would you care about? Maybe you'd be concerned about the big world issues. But here... God's concern is directed towards an ordinary, childless couple because it's in His nature to show mercy. Um, Whenever I'm on a plane that's um, ascending into the sky, uh, just as it's about to take off, um, I always like to look out the window and see hundreds of cars below me, just driving, just streams and streams of cars, everyone going about their daily lives. Uh, And as the plane um, starts to take off, these cars just get smaller and smaller from my line of vision. And as I look at these cars, all I think to myself is, man, in these cars, there are people. There are so many people, all with their own struggles, with their own problems, with their own issues. You know, sometimes we think that our problems aren't big enough to bring to God. I mean, why would God care about me? Why would he care about my sadness, my loneliness, my pain? You know, I'm just one person, right? In the midst of 7.6 billion other people on this planet. Well, God does care because in mercy, he gravitates towards those who can't help themselves. He's a God of mercy. That's who he is. Back in verse 13, the angel said this child will be called John. But now in verse 59, the community expects that um, this child will be called after Zechariah, after his, after his father. That's the normal naming convention. Um, so when Elizabeth insists that his name be called John, they don't really get it. I mean, none of their relatives are called by this name. But then Zechariah steps in. And even though he can't speak, he calls for his writing tablet or his iPad Pro in verse 63 and he writes definitively, his name is John. He finally gets it. Where he previously acted in unbelief, now he believes that he he breaks social convention to obey God's command. And at that point, God opens his mouth and out of his joy in response to God's mercy, Zechariah blesses Often we might look at this and say, you know, big whoop, he just named his child. What's so great about that? But it's often the simple moments of obedience that can define our life. You know, often we might think about obedience in big categories like uh, massive life decisions. Like, should I marry this person? Um, Should I quit my job and move to another country? But a more immediate question is how can I be obedient to God's word today? Who's in front of me today that I can love and treat well? What's one temptation in my life today that I need to say no to? Or who's that person that I'll meet that I can invite to church today? It's often these small moments of obedience that cumulatively lead to a lifestyle of obedience over the long term. And of course, it's a delight because it's all in response to God's mercy. Um, The name John means God is gracious and because of God's mercy, people can't help but ask, what then will this child be? What's coming next? And it's this question that leads us to our next point, that not only does God show mercy to a childless couple, but he shows mercy to an oppressed nation. In verse 67, Zechariah is filled with the Spirit to speak on God's behalf. And if you look at verse 72, this song's all about rejoicing in God's mercy to Israel. God has come to help a helpless nation. And in this song, every one of these lines is either a direct quote or an allusion to the Old Testament. So, what Zechariah is doing here is connecting the promise of mercy in the Old Testament with the fulfillment of God's mercy in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. So the first key promise there is in verse 68. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the Old Testament, God promises David that from his house, from his offspring, that Israel would be an everlasting kingdom which would dwell in peace from their enemies. But very quickly after David, King Solomon, his son, even though there is a time of peace, Israel quickly divides and is overtaken by their enemies. And now today, Israel is under Roman occupation and it's oppressed by their enemies again. So Zechariah is saying here that the answer was never Solomon. The answer to this promise was always pointing to Jesus as the true son of David. And so in Jesus, God is raising up this horn of salvation in verse 69. The horn here is the horn of the ox. And it points to the strength of the king that will come to rescue his people. And Jesus will be the one to destroy all the forces that oppress us. And on that cross, we know that he defeated the enemies of Satan, sin and death on our behalf. Jesus is the merciful King who comes to a people who can't help themselves to rescue us from our enemies. The second big promise there is in verse 72. Verse 72 says that God will save his people to show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. We know that in Genesis 12, God promises Abraham that he will make Abraham's offspring into a great nation, that he would bless them and that they would be a blessing to the whole earth. So now in Jesus, Jesus is the true offspring of Abraham, who would be the ultimate blessing for his people. And the blessing of Christ won't just be for the Jews, but this blessing will go to all nations. In Jesus, God has come to show mercy to his people by fulfilling his promise that he's made from the very beginning. You know, right now in, in many parts of the world, um, the church is being severely persecuted. We don't, we don't feel it as much here. Um, that There's an organization called the Barnabas Fund that reports about the treatment of God's people all around the world. Um, and it's this Barnabas Fund um, that reported recently in Congo that 30 Christians were slaughtered by terrorists because they refused to convert to Islam. We also read 13 Christians were recently killed in a suicide bomb in Cameroon. And in North Korea Christians are regularly um, put in prison for their for their faith. They're malnourished, they're tortured because they refuse to give up their faith in Christ. Jesus sees an oppressed people who are too weak To defend themselves and he comes to them out of his mercy so that though on this earth they might suffer and they will die they have an eternal life with Jesus who came to die for them and one day their enemies will be no more as Christ will bring them to heaven safely where they will experience no more pain or suffering or death because God loves to help the weak. He's a God of mercy. Both these promises to Abraham and David are the same. They're they're pointing us towards salvation in Christ. So where the Old Testament is the era of promise in Christ, the New Testament now is the era of fulfillment in Christ. The The whole Bible proclaims the same story, the same good news of mercy and salvation through Christ. Luke shows us that there's an internal consistency in the Bible, that the Bible promises a very specific Savior, and then Jesus meets every one of these requirements so that you would have certainty that Jesus is the Savior, that He is the one we've been waiting for. That's what Zechariah is saying here. Jesus isn't just some person that randomly drops in from anywhere to save but no, he comes in fulfillment of an Old Testament that's loaded with hundreds and hundreds of years of expectation. Jesus is not a new story. Jesus is the culmination of a very old story promised long ago. And God shows us this mercy so that in verse 74, we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. What a joy it is to serve a God like this. You know, think about a boss at work who who treats you so well, who's always had your back, who's always defended you, even when you've made a mistake, who's always fought for you um, to get that promotion, even though you couldn't speak up for yourselves. How great is it to work and serve someone like that? And now it says that we can serve God without fear. What immense hope that is for the persecuted church who worship God every day in the fear that they could be mistreated, that, could, that they could even die for their faith. And what a privilege for us as recipients of God's mercy. And maybe this year, think about how God might have you serve Him. You know, at the moment, there's so many ministries at church. There's so much need here for more leaders, for more helpers. Maybe speak to your life group leader. Maybe um, speak to one of your mentors or maybe speak to even one of the pastors here who could help you think through how you can serve God this year. So now from here, Zechariah's focus shifts to his son, John, which brings us to our last point, that there's mercy for a dying world. You know, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, the one thing we all share in common is that one day we'll die. Psychologists say that death lurks constantly at the back of our minds. It subconsciously can drive nearly everything that we do. It drives the decisions that we make around food. So, for instance, we eat organic foods. Um, we even eat things called superfoods now, like kale and, and quinoa. Um, one of my friends um, went gluten free, even though he has no gluten intolerance. Then he went dairy free. Um, then he even went sugar-free. I don't even know how he does it. He's free of all those things. We know now that he's free of enjoyment as well. Now, you see, the thought of death is constantly on our minds. Um, it, it, it changes the way we live as well. It, it changes how we exercise. We even have bucket lists now to make sure that we maximize the time that we have on this earth because it's limited. It's limited. And even in our happiest, our our healthiest moments in this life, the shadow of death is lurking constantly in the background. It is a reality that we are helpless to avoid. And it's with the backdrop of this reality that John comes to proclaim good news. Verse 76 says that John will come as a prophet of the Most High to prepare the way of the Lord, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. John will prepare us to meet God himself, who's coming not just to bring mercy to a childless couple, not just to bring mercy to an oppressed nation, but to bring mercy to save a dying world. Because of our sin, verse 79 says that we all sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. This is taken from Isaiah 60, where God will come to bring light, not just to Israel, but to the nations. God in mercy has come to fulfill his promises for the world. And the shadow of death here doesn't just refer to a physical death, though it includes that, but it also refers to a spiritual death, a separation from God himself. Sin leads to death because sin separates us from the God who's the giver, who's the sustainer of life. You know, it's really strange. Um, If you think about death, death should feel so natural to us. Everyone dies. So we should actually think of death as actually the most common, the most normal human experience in the world. Yet when someone dies, It always feels so wrong. Even though everyone dies and everyone in history has died, we still say this isn't right. Things are not as they should be. It's because that our physical death is a reflection of our spiritual death and darkness. And of course, sin is so part of our lives that we're helpless to do anything about it. But John will come to prepare us to meet a saviour. Verse 78 says that Jesus is like the sun rising to give life because he will guide us into the way of peace, which means that we can look at Jesus and we can see the path to life. And Jesus will lead us into this life by dying for our sins. And on that cross, Jesus dies for the helpless, for the ungrateful, for the violent, for the untruthful, for the proud, so that he can truly be a light into a dark world. Why will God do all this? It's there in verse 78. It's because of the tender mercy of our God. God's tender mercy reveals his inmost feelings about us, where God feels such deep compassion and is so moved in himself to help. God's so drawn to the helpless that he provides a child for a helpless couple. He rescues an oppressed nation and now he will die for a dying world. He doesn't just tolerate you. No, he loves you. He loves to show mercy to the weak and to the vulnerable who are in Christ. You know, it's so hard for us to believe this because we've gotten so used to the limited mercy of humans. You know, sometimes we think about our family and friends and yeah, they may forgive us a few times, but eventually there'll come a point where maybe enough is enough. We've hurt them too much. The walls go up. There's no turning back. There's no more mercy. There's no more forgiveness. And we keep on hurting the people that we love but God is different because mercy is his very heart. Um, the author Dane Ortland says that God is a billionaire in the currency of mercy and the withdrawals we make as we sin our way through life only cause his fortune to grow greater, not less, cause he can show more mercy. As Romans five says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more so today if you're feeling weighed down by guilt if there's a sin that you can't seem to shrug even though we're going to fail again and again and again as you come to him you know that god will never cast you out often we're very reluctant to share our struggles to share our sins with other people, maybe in the fear that if we told them they wouldn't see us the same way again. Maybe they judge us for it or they might even reject us as friends. How good is it then that when we come to God with all our sin, in all our shame, with nothing to hide, we know that He is a God of mercy, that He won't reject us. We just need to come and receive His forgiveness. So if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, God invites you to humbly approach Him and receive forgiveness and restoration for your sin. You can do this now by praying, by admitting our helplessness, by admitting our need of rescue and trusting that God will forgive our sins and that He's the one that will delight to lead us into life. But of course, this invitation is for all of us as well. Because we know that even as Christians, we're constantly weighed down by sin. And often confessing and admitting our sin before God is not something we do regularly enough. We don't do this because we misunderstand who God is. If only what came into our heads when we thought of God was that He was a God of mercy. Mercy who loves to help us, well, we'd come to Him all the time. Hebrews 4 says, to approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. 1 Peter 5 encourages us to cast all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. This is the tender mercy of God that's found time and time again in the whole Scriptures. It's not just in Luke. We've seen this in the Old Testament and it's through the whole Bible because this is God's heart. How you see God will determine how you relate to Him. Perhaps as you look over your life, you might think that God's mercy has passed you by. Maybe you didn't receive the things you really wanted. Maybe you felt mistreated. Maybe you felt misunderstood for much of your life maybe many of the the physical and the emotional scars you've experienced have never gone away. If God's mercy is so great, then why doesn't it look so great in my life? Well, to the helpless, Dane Ortland says that the evidence of Christ's mercy towards you is not your life. The evidence of Christ's mercy to you is His life where he's mistreated, where he himself is misunderstood, betrayed and abandoned in your place. And it's because of Jesus that makes all of life mercy, even in the hardest, even in our lowest moments of life. We have a God who's come to us, who's died for us, who's rose again and now unites himself with us by his spirit, all because of his tender mercy. May our view of God change as we mine the depths and the riches of God's tender mercy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your tender mercy towards us. That while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Lord, help us to see your hand in all of history, fulfilling all the promises you've made and saving us according to your perfect plan. Lord, so often we fail to come to you because we don't see you for who you really are. Would we see your compassionate heart? Would we see your love towards us uh, who are weak and who are helpless? Lord, we come to you now empty handed asking for your mercy to save us and transform us into your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen.